All right, thank you, Ruth. And all God's people said, aw, what a nice story. Okay, um, if this was a full room, there'd be some chuckles, and I'd feel better about myself. Now, um, okay, so this is our passage today. Um, two stories of King Herod. This is pretty much who we're going to focus on. Whoa, almost dropped communion. Um, it's pretty much what we're going to focus on today. We have two stories about Herod that we're going to talk about, and we're going to try to put this passage into some context for you as I raise this up. Now, um, I do want to echo what, uh, what Ruth said there about our, our uh, after-church after-party, our online after-party. Um, there's a gift basket, too. You have to make it. Um, but, uh, yeah, every week I get, we get a few more people, and uh, it's been great. And uh, it last week got, like, really deep, and I think that's awesome. People are telling us about themselves and their experiences. And uh, on this week, I'm bringing some questions from sort of this passage today to it, to talk about it. And uh, if you're watching this, and it's, it's not yet Sunday at 11.45, um, and you come up with a couple questions that you'd like, just bring them, bring them to, the, to the after party and, uh, and jump in there. We'll do that together. So um, we're going to talk today about this guy, Herod. Um, Herod Agrippa, the first. So first, let's pray with this terrifying face looming over us, and, uh, and then we'll dive into this passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything that you are, everything that you have, uh, you have done with us. Thank you for protecting us during this time. Thank you for keeping our people safe. I lift up those right now who I know are sick, um, battling this virus, and I, uh, I, I lift them up to you. I pray that you would protect them and, and protect those around them. Um, and then bring them back to us uh, healthy um, as vital pieces of our community, every one of them. Um, <clears throat> I lift up what we're about to do here together. Um, I lift up everyone who watches this, every single person who, for whatever reason, has tuned in. Maybe it's just gone by on some social media feed and they clicked on it. Thank you for bringing them here to us. I pray that, uh, uh, first off, that they'd stick around. And I pray that you would speak to them uh, through me, through us, that we would be your... Uh, your voice to speak into their lives. Let them know that, uh, that you understand um, the fear that they have and the, uh, the things that they've been through and uh, you've gone ahead of them and uh, you're leading them through it. And so wherever they are, whatever they're doing, um, fill them up, lift them up. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so let's talk about Herod, shall we? Um, we are here adduced, uh, inter- <laughs> introduced to the the second Herod in sort of a, a line of Herods in the Bible. Uh, this is Herod Agrippa. Um, and Herod Agrippa, it has come to his attention that there is a group of people claiming to have another king. Um, if you've ever wondered why the Christians were persecuted, if you've ever wondered why, I mean, I hear people talk about, well, they, the Christians will be persecuted because the Bible says they just hate us. Well, first off, who is they? Um, it's other kings. That's who the they is. Um, and the reason Christians were persecuted in the first century was very simple. They didn't affirm the kings of their day. When they said Jesus is Lord, they're saying Herod Agrippa is not. And Herod Agrippa does not like to hear that he is not Lord because Herod Agrippa believes that he himself is Lord, as many rulers of the world do. <clears throat> Let me get a sip. It's hitting. All right. So, um, Herod is not pleased with this group of people calling themselves the church, the ecclesia, the gathering. Um, he's not happy with them. He, and, and he also knows that some of the Jewish people 
have been being propagandized by the temple leaders and are being turned on the church because the church up to this point has found favor in all the people. All the people liked the people in the church. All of Jerusalem, the Jewish people loved the church um, because of the things that they were doing, the way they were healing people and, and spreading the table for, pe for people who were never welcomed at any tables. But now... Once the temple leader started persecuting the people of the church, the people of the church started to scatter. And then what happens is there's no Christians in the city really to defend themselves and sort of talk about, um, sort of rhetorically defend themselves. And so the temple leaders have been able to sort of turn the people and their, and their opinions of the Christians sort of dark. And Herod comes to realize, oh, the people are starting to not like the Christians anymore. And so now it is once again open season on the Christians. And so he starts persecuting some of them. Um, first, he arrests um, James, the brother of John, in watching the sermon last week. I realized I said James, the brother of Jesus. It ain't. He is later. Um, James, the brother of John, um, is arrested and executed. Peter is arrested and he escapes miraculously. We talked about it last week. If, if you didn't catch up, then, then catch up. You don't know what we're talking about. Um, and then... Other people uh, are beginning to be arrested as well. So um, Herod sort of opens up this like open season on the Christians. And then what happens is Peter escapes. Herod's really mad. He throws a fit. He executes the guards who let him escape because that's how it goes. That's kind of like, that's kind of like the punishment. You're holding, you, you had one job. Um, so after a little, bit per, a, little, a little persecution on the Christians, Herod leaves the area of Judea and heads to one of his temples in Caesarea. This is the, this is the temple. I'm sorry, it's not temple. Palace. This is his palace in uh, the leftovers of his palace in, in Caesarea Maritima. Um, and there's several Caesareas and several palaces around and there's ruins and some of them are underwater, but they're still there. And we know where they are, where, where, he, uh, where he went to. So while he's here hanging out in Caesarea in his palace, um, we come to find out that he's having a bit of a tiff with the cities of Tyre and Sidon to the north up along the coast um, in the area of Phoenicia. Um, and this quarrel is over food. You see, a lot of the areas, especially up north along the coast, are in this famine, and there's Tyre and there's Sidon in the area of Phoenicia. It, uh, it, is, it is undergoing famine, and the people rely upon King Herod and his food supply to survive, okay? And so Herod realizes, as a lot of world leaders do, he has something that they want, and when you have something that someone else wants and you are a political figure, you can use that um, to really get whatever you want. We call it a quid pro quo, right? Like you can use this thing you have to get whatever you want from other people. I'll give you this if you give me that. Um, and so what happens is there's this dispute over food and Herod realizes I have the food that they need and what I need is their support. And so there is this back and forth and the people finally realize, like, there's nothing we can do. We're going to starve and we're going to die. We need the support of Herod. Uh, we need to support Herod so that we can get his food. They don't want to, but they have to. Now, this is a hard situation for a lot of modern readers to put themselves into because we don't exist in their world. We don't depend uh, upon anyone, really, for food. It's readily available where we are right now. There's places in the world that do understand this. The most people that are going to hear this on the internet... Uh, are, they, they, they have computers and iPhones. and they're, they're probably fine. And so you're not going to understand what it means to go through something like this. When you need something from a powerful man, something as basic as food, you basically become a slave to men like that. You're unable to do what you want. You're unable to make your own choices. You're unable to even be honest about your deeply held convictions. You must hide them. You must 
go along. You must not speak out. You must silence yourself so that you can continue to live and survive. There are some in our communities who do know what this is like, um, but you probably don't realize they're going through it most of the time. Um, Try and understand, when you read the Bible, you have a specific social location. We've talked about social locations a lot, um, I believe last year and the year before, about how you read the Bible. When you come to the Bible and you open it up and you read it, you are bringing your social location and uh, projecting it onto the text. And you are going to see the things that you want to see, and you're going to not see the things that that don't really affect you in any way. And so most people don't even realize that there's a debate over food happening. But it's there. Uh, And the ancient commenters on the text bring it to the top and and make it sort of the center idea of, of, of what is happening in the text here. And I'll show you why as we move forward. But your social location, probably a place of privilege and power, completely ignorant of their geography, um, and famines and what it's like to live under oppressive King Herod. Um, you're ignorant of what it's like to live under any kind of, of, of sort of, uh, brutal oppression. So if you are like me, you will likely never in your life find yourself in this position. I don't think I will ever understand this, what this is like. But I can study it, and I can try to grasp it the best I can. Some of your neighbors, however, like I said, know a lot more about this than you do, and you don't even realize it. But it's there, and they know it. Um, Exploited immigrants working in strawberry fields who have opinions but cannot say them. They keep their head down, they keep their mouths shut, and they work, and they are underpaid. But they need it to survive and live, and so they do. They don't ask for more, or they will be replaced and lose what little bit that they have. Uh, Women in the sex trade. Um, who don't see any other option, and they're afraid to even try to escape for fear of physical abuse. Um, even sometimes, you may not realize it, but the clerk who is bagging your groceries, low-income wages um, that they have to deal with um, this very week that you came into contact with, um, they don't make enough to provide for their own children despite working long hours at multiple jobs. And they depend upon these things for food, but it is not what they want to do and they put their head down and they keep their mouths shut and they work anyways. And you don't understand what that's like, many of you, and I don't understand what that's like, but some of your neighbors do. And the writers of the text did. And Jesus did. Jesus knows what it's like to live in a bad situation. Um, In a world where things are not bent in your favor. Uh, He understands that. Now, it's not just Jesus that understands it. It's, it's the, the Christians understood this. They were witnesses to this in their day. All of them know that things in their day were not the way that they should have been and that they must go along with them or else they risk losing even what little bit that they do have. And so the early Christians were actually witnesses of this type of injustice everywhere. Not just witnesses of it. They, were, they felt it. They were victims of it. Um, Luke tells us um, in, in Acts chapter 11. I'm going to pull this up right here. Um, In Acts chapter 11, verse 20, Luke tells us that the same men from the area of Phoenicia, in the area of Tyre and Sidon, um, are the ones who went and planted the church in Antioch that we read about a couple of chapters ago. And so these these Christians who planted this church in Antioch came from this area. Uh, Luke puts it like this. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, these cities are neighbor cities of Tyre and Sidon and the whole area of Phoenicia, and they had the same problems. They relied upon evil men for their very survival. And so these Christians that planted this church were aware 
that their neighbors were experiencing this. They were very aware of it. Um, and since they were completely unable to actually affect change, they didn't have a democracy, they couldn't vote, they couldn't do anything to change it. They couldn't speak out either. And so what they did was they chose to live in a certain way that contrasted their mindset with the mindset of the world. And so what they did was they, it's what they called all the way back in the Old Testament, it's what they called being a city on a hill. I mean, that's a description of Jerusalem, a city, and it's lit up, and it's at night, it's on a hill, it can't be hidden. Um, but this wasn't just a description of the city of Jerusalem. This was a uh, sort of a motto and a mantra of how they wanted to live. They wanted to be a city on a hill that all the world looked to and said, look at them, look at how they exist, look at how they're living. That's different from what I know. That is different from anything that I've ever experienced. And so... This is what the Christians did. I want you to look at, at, at how they lived. Men who, who moved from the area of Phoenicia to plant a church in Antioch and watch what happens in chapter 11, what we read about already before. It says a severe famine in verse 28. A severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world and the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And this they did. And so they came from an area where they relied upon Herod for their food and they know what it's like to suffer, and they know what it's like to fear, and then they plant this church, and as a people, living as the Imago Dei, the vocation of showing the world what it is like to be Christ, showing the world what the kingdom of God is really like, when they hear about a famine, they gather up what little they have, and they send it. This is the first thing that instantly, right away, this is what they did. And so having just read about this severe famine, um, in Acts 11, 28 through 30, we now come to this, uh, today's passage, where it says Herod had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They asked for peace because they depended upon the king's country for their food supply. So Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is now creating this contrast between how the Christians lived and how the nations of the world lived, how the kingdom of God existed and how the kingdom of Herod and Rome existed how their king looked and how the kings of the world looked. And so what we have here is this contrast that Luke is doing. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Luke is doing a lot of contrast throughout the book of Acts. Um, and so it's, so it's sort of like he says, here's what Jesus is doing and here's what your king is doing. He's creating this contrast. Now, subversive contrast in the ancient world was perhaps the most important tool of, of evangelization for the Christians. And I would argue it is to this very day. When Christians decide to live in a way that is consistent with the teachings of Christ, Christ first, and reading the rest of the text through the lens of Jesus, not the other way around. Not reading the text and then reading Jesus into the other parts. Reading Jesus first and, and living as Jesus lived in this world. Um, what happens is Christians begin to be this subversive people who create a contrast between how they exist and how the people of the world exist. And their currency becomes not money. Money simply becomes a tool. Their currency is grace and love and mercy and joy. And so throughout Christian history, at any given point, you can look and see Christians who are living this life of contrast that is meant to show the world the failures of their kings. By the way, this is what the cross is. A king, God, in the flesh, on the cross, naked, bearing shame, creating contrast. This is how the power of God enters into the world. 
It is not through strong military might. It is through a man hanging on a cross, pouring himself out, and then forgiving the people who are doing that to him while he is still going through it. It is meant to show contrast between our king and their kings. Look what their kings are capable of doing, but look how ineffective it is, really, to bring about goodness and healing and salvation. And so this subversive contrast that Christians have always, um, in, on, in some sense, in, in, in a lot of pockets of Christianity, that, that they have always lived out, is everywhere. Uh, one, of, one of the ones I want to point out to you is uh, in the early 20th century, a man named William Booth. This guy, epic beard. Um, so in, in, the, in the early 20th century, this guy, William Booth, created on purpose a stark contrast between Christianity and the world, between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. Um, and so what he did is, is uh, he and his wife Catherine worked amongst the, the, the poorest of the poor and the ostracized, and they formed an army of volunteers who wore, as you can see, sort of military garb, as in like we are an army too, but we're not like your army. Uh, they're called the Salvation Army. Stop, if you, stop me if you've heard this one. Like the Salvation Army, where you, where you get those really good deals. Like that was started by this guy. Um, the Salvation Army itself was originally this, um, this ministry to the ultra-poor and the ostracized people in, in, in society. Um, and they carried, they, even though they wore military-style uniforms, they never carried weaponry. And instead of conquering evil by shedding blood, they conquered evil with healing and, and providence, providing the needs of people, meeting the needs um, that, that caused anger and violence to exist. And so if you can meet the needs of the people, the violence wouldn't exist in the city and there'd be no reason to sort of tamp them down with more violence. Um, and, and so um, he basically is saying like, it's the pageantry of, of contrast. Here is our army and here's how we bring peace and wholeness into the world. You bring, pre- bring peace through coercion, through the sword. We bring peace through salvation, through the cross, through allowing ourselves to be broken and poured out and serving you. This is how the Christian community, the the kingdom of God creates contrast between who we are and how we function and how the nations of the world around us function. And at no point are we ever commanded to sort of merge these things together and, and borrow from the other. We are a full-on kingdom with a king and land, it's the whole world, and citizens, it's us, the church. Um, and, and this is the people that we are. So, That is what Luke is doing as well. He's constantly going throughout this book. Perhaps you've been seeing it already. He's creating contrast between the the Christians and the world. So something else happens in this passage that is very telling. Um, And the interesting thing about this thing that happened is it didn't even need to be told because it has nothing to do with the church other than the fact that it creates contrast between the world and the church. And I'm talking about that weird story that Ruth read at the end where Herod stands up on this pedestal and makes some declarations and dies and is eaten by worms, okay? That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, and this is one of my, my favorite things sort of in the book of Luke. It's, it's a really interesting piece. Um, and like I said, there's no reason Luke had to include this story because it has nothing to do with the, Jew, with, with the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with the church. It's just how Herod died. And the reason he puts it in there is for contrast, and I'm going to show you that. 
So let's read the text here. It says, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately Herod did not give, uh, give praise to God. Oh, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> fin, the end. Now, um, what a weird story. Why, what in the world is happening? Why is it happening? What is going on here? So, oftentimes, when you want to understand a Bible, uh, a story in the Bible, um, it's helpful not just to read the Bible, but to read contemporary texts from around that day and try to get some outside perspective on, on these events that happened. Now, um, some texts have survived that talk about this event outside the Bible. Um, one of them is Josephus. He's the main one. And if you read Josephus, Josephus has a very detailed account of this day, surprisingly. Sometimes people read this and they're like, well, that's just a myth that was added in there for effect. Um, no, no, no. Like this happened and Josephus writes about it and gives us more details about how exactly it happened. And in fact, um, they kind of tell the story a little differently. Um, and, and maybe we can talk about why. Okay, so um, if you go and read, open your... Open your, open your, your Josephus books um, to, uh, to, uh, <laughs> I'll just read it. Here we go. So it says this. He says, he says, on the second day, he put on a garment made wholly of silver uh, and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by fresh reflections from the sun rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread horror over those that looked intently upon him. And his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet we shall henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. So, let's pause here. We'll read a little more in a bit. Um, here's what happens. Um, Herod says, okay, um, I've got their support. I, I bought it through food. Uh, and now I'm going to take this one step further, and I'm going to ensure that they look at me a particular way, and I'm going to make sure that I am worshipped. I'm going to make sure I will get all the praise that I desire and demand. Some people... Uh, all they want really is this praise. They want other people to, 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 to praise them where they stand. And, and yes, I affirm your power. And this is what Herod does. Um, and so he sets up this ceremony and he gets up early in the morning and he wears a shirt. Apparently, according to Josephus, it is made entirely of actual real silver. Um, I don't know if that's silver leaf or what. I'm not sure how you would move in something like that. But he dresses in this garb entirely from head to toe of silver, probably a hat and everything, and he's, and he's wearing all this stuff. Um, Luke just calls it royal garb, um, but it's, Josephus tells us it was made entirely of silver. And in the morning, he's standing in apparently this space that had been constructed so that there's a pedestal in the middle and a podium, and the light comes through and hits it in the morning at a certain time, and then he makes sure that he walks out and stands there when the light hits, and it sort of, sort of lights up the whole room, and all the people, imagine everyone who was there, these representatives from Tyre and Sidon and all the neighboring cities and Phoenicia and sailors and all kinds, and they're all there. Um, 
And all of a sudden, the dude is glowing and lighting up, and it's reflecting the whole room like a disco ball. And they're like, oh man, it's so bright. And then, um, I mean, think about this. They've never seen, these are peasants. They've never seen anything like this, this kind of special effects thing. Rome was great at special effects. Um, And they did this kind of stuff a lot, especially during like their Olympic games and stuff. Um, But these people had never seen anything like this. And so they're watching this amazing thing happen. It's blowing their minds. They're like, he's glowing. He's, he's glowing. Okay, and, and it's just, and they're watching. And as they're watching this spectacle, and he is giving this speech, he has apparently positioned people, it appears from Josephus, around the room who are, who are calling out and sort of propagandizing and sort of uh, bending the minds of the people about how they are supposed to understand what is happening. And they start calling out, and they say, um, although we have hitherto re- uh, reverenced thee only as a man, we, we henceforth shall own thee as superior to mortal nature. He's like, he's not a normal man. He's a god. Um, and this is all pageantry. This is all show. Now, let's read a little farther. Uh, shall, oh, wait, first off, let's read. Here's Luke's account of how this thing ended. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, the angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So Luke, this is how he's sort of telling this. These are ancient historical documents. Um, Luke is going by what he knows. And it's okay that their accounts are different. This is how it is with historical events. Um, This is how Luke Luke writes this down. So let's read Josephus now. Let's read a little farther with Josephus. All right, here we go. But as he presently afterwards looked up, He saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head, and immediately he understood that this bird was a messenger of ill ill tidings. I love that, by the way. He looked up, he's like, oh no, an owl. What does this mean? (laughs) And he goes, um, and he says, and he fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And he therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you, uh, you just now said to me. And I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. And so he kind of leans into his friends. He goes, I know you're calling me immortal, but honestly, I think I'm, I think I'm dying. Uh, and when he said this, his pain became violent, and according, accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere, even to Luke, uh, that, that he would certainly die in a little time. But the multitude presently sat in sackcloth with their wives and children, and after the law of their country, and, and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation, so everyone was aware of this story. Everyone knew it, Okay. Um, including the Christians and Luke. Uh, And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. So he died from pain in his belly. And apparently um, it was very common in the ancient world for this type of death to happen with people who had worms. So uh, yeah, you, you read these stories sometimes and you're like that, Okay, that, I mean, that was just put there for fun, fun effect. It's like a special effect in a movie. It's the J.J. Abrams part. Uh, Josephus tells us this really happened. This is an actual thing that went down. And what Luke is doing, he's interpreting. He says, I, I know why that happened. This is what the Israelites, God's people, have always done. They look, back upon their, they look back upon their exile and their suffering and their pain, and they interpret it, and they say, 
This happens, this is what happens when we turn away from God and we go our own way, we end up in exile. And it's part of the tradition of God's people to look back upon what they've been through and read theology into it. It's perfectly acceptable, it's understandable. And there's reasons why. So let's talk about in a bit some of that. What is the point of all this? Now, um, several things um, Luke is doing here in the book of Acts to create contrast. So, um, some of the things he's creating contrast between are, he's creating contrast between uh, the way God's people lived before and the way God's people live now. Um, And we know, um, now that we know that God is like Jesus, there is a contrast between the way God's people lived at one point and then suddenly with the appearance of Jesus, suddenly we realize God is not like, like we thought God was. We now know that God is like Jesus and God has always been like Jesus. And so now from this point forward, we will live like this, whereas before we were living, living like that. So Luke does this kind of contrast. Another thing Luke does to create contrast is, contrast is he creates contrast between the kingdoms of the past and the kingdoms that God is establishing in the present. And so this is one of those contrasts between the kingdoms of the past and how they come to an end. Herod dealt in death. This is how Herod lived his entire life. As all earthly leaders do, we cannot get away from the fact that earthly leaders, heads of governments and military, deal with death. Not just with death, in death. This is all they have to create good in the world. The threat of violence, tanks and bombers and weaponry. This is all we can come up with. Earthly leaders and kingdoms deal in death. It's all we can do. Um, Matthew uh, captures Jesus' words uh, when he goes to the the temple leaders who also dealt in death, who were regularly arresting people and having them executed. And he speaks to them, and here's what he says in Matthew 23, 27. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. They were beautiful on the outside, just like Herod in his silver shirt. I always picture Backstreet Boys in the silver shirt. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, he... They looked beautiful, just like Herod. They're all dressed up and they're looking the best that they can and putting off this vibe for the world that I have it together. And, and today, you know, they wear their suits and they fly their planes and they ride in his limos and they're, they're putting off like, like, like they've got it all and they're beautiful and their lives are together. But on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. All they can do, all that flows from inside of them, all it can be is death. It's the only way that we know. Herod was this way. He was filled with worms and maggots that feast on the flesh of the dead. Inside of him was nothing but death. And and that is all his hands could produce from the execution of James, the brother of John, um, his father uh, uh, killing, slaughtering all the babies in the land, trying to kill Jesus, who was born uh, in in that day. Um, And then then Agrippa um, trying to execute Peter after executing James. And then when he can't execute Peter and Peter escapes, he executes all of his guards. And then um, we read a little farther that there's entire cities that are starving to death. And he's willing to let this happen if he doesn't get what he wants. And so the contrast that Luke is giving us is he's asking what becomes of such a world What becomes of such rulers? What becomes of such nations that deal in death? And you see in Acts 12, he was eaten by worms and he died. This is why Luke talks like this. This is why Luke is saying, and you know why this happened? 
he died this way because all that was in him was death. All that came out of his mouth and his hands and his works and his deeds and his commands, it was all death, death, death. And so naturally, as Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And this man dealt in death and grew death inside of himself. Um, but, there's a but in that line. He was eaten by worms and died, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Interesting that he puts that there. Again, no reason for this entire story to be in this passage. Doesn't deal with the church. The reason he puts this there is to show what happens to the nations of the world because they deal in death, but shows what happens to the kingdom of God, which will stand forever. Because our king is filled with life. Life oozes from every part of him. Everything that he does, from his words, out of his hands, his mission was entirely restorative and redemptive. This is what he dealt with. And in, it was life, resurrection, restoration. He literally breathed life into men like Lazarus. Um, and, and, and even as he was breathing out his last breath, He's breathing out forgiveness for people who were doing this to him as if to remove that suffering from them and that guilt from them. Jesus was not coercive and he reveals God as not coercive. He moved throughout this world inviting people into this new way, not threatening them uh, if they didn't join, not saying you better align or else, even though this is oftentimes how you will hear the story of God told. You better align or else. That is not Jesus. That is a gospel story where they have filtered Jesus out and have not described God like Jesus. And they have created a God that is far more like Herod than like Jesus. Um, Jesus' mission was not coercive. He, he was not threatening. He was loving and embracing and brought people in. He rebuked people constantly. But there was always a seat at the table for them to taste and see this new way and that he was good. His mission, no matter what, could not be stopped. Even though Herod looked beautiful on the outside, he was full of death on the inside. And even though Jesus literally looked like death on the outside while he was dying and suffering and mutilated and bloody and disgusting, while he looked like that, he was filled with life. Even life enough to bring about resurrection and to conquer everything that the empire of death could throw at him. What we are given in the book of Acts constantly is contrast. The early Christians were beginning to see the world through this contrast. And for three years, Jesus would tell them, hey, you know what the kingdom of God is like? The kingdom of God is like this, and the kingdom of God is like this. Why is he doing this? And why is he telling them weird stories every time he does this? because he's trying to get them to understand the kingdom of God is not like you would expect it to be. The kingdom of God is like this mustard seed that you kind of put in the ground. And, it, and mustard plants only grow about this big, but this one doesn't. This mustard plant grows so big that it, it's like the tree from Ezekiel that gets so big that birds land in it. The birds of the world. And he takes, he borrows from like the, uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament of, of all the world finding shelter in this tree. And he's like, all the kingdoms of the world will, will look just the same like this and this and this, but the kingdom of God will look different. Why? Jesus is always saying the kingdom of God is nothing like you would ever expect. The kingdom of God does not belong here. We are in exile. We are, we are vagabonds. We are wanderers. We are resident aliens. This is how 
the early Christians spoke about the way that they lived and dwelled in this world. And that is the lens that Luke, Luke wants us to look through as we move throughout our world. In the midst of confusion and lies and division and violence and hatred and racism, the phrase, but Jesus, but the word of God should always be on our lips. This nation is in dis- terrible description of, uh, ter- terrible description of whatever this nation is like. But the kingdom of God is like this. This leader is like this, but Jesus is like this. This person is like this, but Jesus is like this. This gathering is like this, but the church, the, the body of Christ is like this. And when we look at the way things are in the world, we should contrast it with like, is that what Christ is like? I don't think it is. And so I don't think I should be a part of this. Is this what Christ is like? Yeah, this is a Christ-like thing. This will remain when the kingdom of God is established. I can take part in this. Christian ethics are not all that complicated. The things that will exist in the kingdom of God are things that should exist now. And anything that will not exist in the kingdom of God, in this world, it's not some place far away. In this world, we're not Gnostics. Anything that will exist in the kingdom of God in this world, I will preserve. And anything that will not exist in the kingdom of, of, of God, I am not going to preserve it. I'm not going to stand there and defend it. I'm going to let it be, but I'm going to let it fall. Because it's part of a world that deals in death, whose currency is mammon, not grace and mercy and love. It is a whole different way of living in this world. The phrase, but the kingdom of God, should be our constant Interaction. It should guide our interactions. Perhaps I think the biggest failure of, and this will be a big, this will be a big sentence here, but I think one of the biggest failures of modern evangelicalism is how it has contrasted itself to secularism. Secularism, I would argue that secularism is, it's a kingdom without a king. Um, there's no, there's no baseline. It's a people trying to do the best they can and put their kings in place the best they can, but they don't really have a set king. There's no baseline where everything is flowing from in secularism. Evangelicalism, on the other hand, it gives you a king with no kingdom. Modern evangelicalism. It, It wasn't always like this. But now it is offering you a king with no kingdom because this king is, he's your personal lord. You have a personal relationship. And there's no other situation in, in, in our minds where we would talk about a king who only has one citizen. That's not a king. A king has a people that follow him and live in his way together. And they recognize each other and they recognize their king and they stir each other towards that king. And they understand what that kingdom is about. And they don't mix it with other kingdoms. And I think that's one of the biggest failures that I think the modern church has given us. This personal thing where you can somehow be separate from the church and from people, from, from your relationship with other people and from submitting to a body of people, yet still somehow have a king, yet not be part of a kingdom. That's a problem. We want our king, but we want to put him beside all these other kings in this world, and we want to be part of other people's other nations. And I think that's one of the big failures. Luke, over and over and over, is creating contrast, not syncretism. 
The contrast is the important thing. The church is a people. The church is a city on a hill. Even now, the church is God's answer to evil in the world. If you have ever sat and wondered, what is, what is God's plan? Look around. Look at everything. It's a huge mess. What in the world is God doing? What is God's plan? The church. The church is God's plan. I'm not joking. The church is, is not just like a temporary thing. The church is literally God's plan. We are God's plan. We are the presence of God in this world. This is your role. This is your job. To enter into these communities as the faithful presence of Jesus himself, but not by yourself, with a group of people, the body of Christ, and to invite people into the kingdom and to live in a way that is contrasted with the kingdoms of this, kingdoms of this world. The church is what God is doing. If you're wondering what God is doing, this is it. This is the church. And perhaps in a time such as this, all of this is necessary for God to kick his people out the doors and to live as the faithful presence in the communities. We've talked about it long enough. It is time to be the people. I think this is a good time to enter into communion. Um, if you have your elements, there are two of them. There's bread and there's wine. The body of Christ and the blood of Christ. The body of Christ is broken for you. It represents the suffering of God, of Jesus. It represents everything, all the pain that he went through in physical form as you are. And the wine symbolizes the blood of Christ, which flowed from seven places on the body of Christ and ran down and dropped off the cross onto the earth so that we would know that this is what God is like. And this is how we can picture God. Not reigning in glorious power and terrifying strength. In the flesh, on the cross, forgiving the ones who did that to him. And now sitting on the throne as our risen king. And so Jesus has given us this exercise. We take the body of Christ and we break it. We dip it in the blood of Christ, the wine. And we do this to remember everything that Jesus taught us. So if you have your elements right now, please take them. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing, your salvation, for the saving of our souls. Let's do our collect prayer, shall we? Do it nice and loud wherever you are. If you're in your car, roll down your windows and at the red light, yell it out. All right, here we go. Oh God, our creator, who never abandons us. Remove our preconceived ideas and clear our sight so we can see and share in what you are doing. God, we confess we are anxious and fearful. Help us to elevate Jesus to his rightful place. Let us hear his voice above all others and see the world through his eyes so we know you are moving and we follow where you lead. Let us each become individuals who are fulfilling the purpose of our creation. In Jesus' name, amen. I love every one of you, and I'm praying for you throughout the week. Feel free to reach out to us anytime. Email the elders, elders at watermarktampa.com. Um, um, get involved in the house churches. Uh, join us shortly after this uh, at 1145 for our after party. And uh, love you all. Grace and peace.